0: India and Pakistan have been in the news. These two rivals apparently are trying to put their differences aside and uh, see if they can't uh, have a little bit more friendly relations. They actually were once the same country up until 1947. And to talk a little bit about the Indian subcontinent, our next guest, Professor Sherrod Malelu. Emeritus Professor of Sociology, has taught for 34 years at CSUS. He obtained his Ph.D. at Ohio State University and a master's degree at Brigham Young University. He uh, came to the United States in 1946, having left India when it was still a British colony. He returns five months a year uh, to live in India, has done so since 1993. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Professor Malaylu. Thank you. India is the world's second largest nation. It is the world's uh, largest democracy. Had uh, India not been partitioned in 1947, for the math I came up with, it would be the world's largest nation. If you add the populations of Pakistan and Bangladesh, it would be greater than that of China. Uh, It's almost more of a region than it is um, a nation. At least some have said that in the past. Currently, India is being rocked by uh, a lot of political chaos. Um, Can you give us some perspective on what is happening with the rise of what's been called Hindu fundamentalism in the um, in the government in India.
1: Well, it's hard to explain in simple terms how it has come into power, but in a general sense, worldwide we see the rise of the right wing, including the United States. Yes, and uh, that's in a sense what's happening in India, and part of it in India is related to these, the phenomenon of globalization, which has produced a lot of disruption, chaos, and upheavals in society lots of changes going on so that the old ways are being challenged and so like the right wing in this country you have the uh, emergence of the right wing there which is trying to present a set of values to stabilize life uh, in India it's strong appeal for that reason and so they're trying to uphold what they believe are traditional values which are of course not traditional values but their version of it Yes. As in this country.
0: We, we might want to explain that Hindu fundamentalism is considered by some to be something of a misnomer. Um, in Western religions, there's a, 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 well, various holy books, the Bible to, to Christians and Jews, the Koran uh, the to Muslims that's held to be holy, but, but the Hindu religion has no central canon. That's right. In fact, so there's to, no founder. So it's hard to call it fundamentalist in the same sense as Western religions.
1: Well, there is some notion of Hindu culture which they're trying to revive. And uh, they're trying to make a distinction between Hindu culture and the other influences that have come in. And they're using that as the basis for their definition of what what India is. And so now one of the issues that has come up is what is an Indian? Who is an Indian? Mm -hmm. And the uh, right wing, the VHP especially, which is the right of the right wing, the right wing of the BJP, what they're saying is that Christians are not Indians, and Muslims are not really Indians. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: They're people who were influenced by the outside and don't identify with India. And this then has raised the question of loyalty. Who are you loyal to? So Christians are seen as more loyal to the West, and Muslims are seen as loyal to Pakistan or some other Western country. And so we have that issue that's come up.
0: Well my understanding is is the Congress party that of, of Nehru who basically came to power the first prime minister of India in 1947 has pretty much ruled supreme until more recently which at which point the the, the BJP they now have, the prime minister is of the BJP party and they've made they pretty much are the ruling party of the country
1: uh, except of course they don't have a majority it's a coalition yeah. and there are about 14 parties that have formed the coalition with the BJP. And they're not uh, ideological parties. In fact, their ideologies may be quite different from that of the uh, BJP. As You may have heard of the VHP, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, which is the strongest and the most vocal component of it. Extreme right wing. It's hard to call them a ruling party. They're not a national party. The Congress is the only, up to now, national party. The communists, perhaps, but they're very uh, low in strength, and they're strong in a few states. Bengal, for example, has had a communist government for a long time, and Kerala was the first communist state uh, in India. But now it's no longer a communist state. But these were communists by election, not from influence from the outside. The Congress Party was powerful for a long time, until the, the independence halo began to wear off. And when it lost the uh, leaders of independence, then people became more interested in results. And for a while, Indira Gandhi ruled with a strong hand and made things go. It's like Mussolini having the trains run on time, Mm -hmm. that kind of uh, control. But then, of course, she lost power because the Indian society is a democracy, and they threw her out. And so that's the reason for the fading of the Congress. So the question now is, what's going to replace the Congress? And there is no other national party. Most of these uh, coalition members are local parties. Each state has certain dominant parties. And they send their representatives to the center. And they form this, this what we call parliament, made yes. up of a number of different uh, political parties. And that, perhaps, is what uh, you re- refer to as yeah. political chaos.
0: Well, I guess in the state of Gujarat, which is the home state of, uh, of, of the, the Gandhi family, yeah. um, there's currently been a takeover by the BJP, which, which has got a lot of people nervous, because they're whipping up, apparently, a lot of religious frenzy over the issue of I guess in the state of um, Uttar Pradesh, there's a, a, a what they what the H- Hindus have been claiming, the right wing Hindus have been claiming, is a mosque built on the site of an, an old Hindu temple. Apparently, an angry mob tore down that mosque in 1992, and a lot of people would like to build a Hindu temple in its place. And this is getting the nation polarized. But the apparently, my understanding is the BJP is using this whipping people up over this issue. Uh, that uh, plays
1: to their strength, of course. And, uh, but it's not going to play too much longer, because the issue really is going to be handled by the courts. That's where the decision will be made. Now, there's a lot of political pressure on the courts, I suppose, to appease the uh, right wing on that. But I don't think it'll play in India.
0: Well, as someone who taught sociology, and this is a subject near and dear to your heart, does it make you, does it make you nervous when you see the current state of this, this political situation in India?
1: No. No, the only thing that makes me nervous is outside influence uh, that comes in. For example, the Muslims coming in under the influence of Pakistan, coming into yes. India and creating all sorts of problems for us, security problems. Yeah. They're the biggest threat. And then we have, of course, the BJP on the right trying to stir up divisions in India based on caste, religion, and so on.
0: There was a, a train, I guess, of, of people that, from Hindus that went back uh, protesting this temple issue, and the train was ba- basically burned down. And there was a subsequent riot killing 2,000 people, and this is a...
1: Uh, well, that, that, that's only a partial report. Uh, the people who uh, wanted to rebuild the temple, they were returning. They were workers, sacred workers, to build the temple. Mm-hmm. They were returning to Gujarat. And the story is that the um, Muslims at train stations waited for this train to come down, and they set this bogey on fire, which was filled with these uh, workers for building the temple. But of course, what the story didn't say was that before this, over a long period of time, Muslim women had been harassed by Hindus as they traveled on that train. And so this was seen as a retaliation I for see. that. I see. But of course, it got completely out of hand as, yeah. thing, as such things happen.
0: In the article that was in the, the, the New Yorker magazine, The Strong Man" by Larissa McFarquhar, which is discussing, well, started talking about the man Baal Thakare.
1: He's from our part. Well, that's where I, I go. Yes. You, you uh, go in to, to in Bombay. In Mahara- Maharashtra. Yes. He's the right-wing party in Maharashtra. And so they are allied then with the BJP. It's not a national party. It's the right-wing in Maharashtra.
0: Now, I, I've heard that uh, he is single-handedly spearheading a movement to b- rename everything. You can't call it Bombay anymore. It has to be called Mumbai.
1: It is called Mumbai now.
0: The Hammond Atlas, actually, that's what it now calls it, Mumbai, Mumbai, parentheses, Bombay.
1: Mumbai. Well, actually, that's the original name in Marathi, Mumbai. In fact, Mumbai Devi was the, was the basis for founding the city. That's the proper name. The British couldn't say it. So they, <laughs> and, of course, the Hin- uh, in Hindi, it's Bombay. But I don't know if they've changed that to Mumbai in Hindi.
0: Well, Mr. Thackeray apparently uh, is a very outspoken a person and is, is very much of the right wing. Uh, they're,
1: the, they're the ones who are against the uh, um, celebration of uh, Valentine's Day. They, really? Entered, yes, <laughs> because it's a Western. In the name of attacking Western society and these foreigners and the corrupt influence on society, they started a drive to ban Valentine's Day. And so they raided shops that were selling Valentine's Day cards. This was last year and wow. the year before. Wow. And so from now on, those shops have remained closed and will stay closed only for that period.
0: Around Valentine's Day, they just shut her up. Yes.
1: And he also had a movement to uh, change the signs that were written in, in the Marathi language. They couldn't um, be in English because they used to have English signs and then Marathi as well. Mm-hmm. English had to be removed. But, of course, that didn't work out very well, right. especially when you need tourists. <laughs> you need tourists, you need to be able to read in English. So they rethought that. Yeah, yeah. He's he's, he's not as straight as he makes himself out to be. He's By his followers, he's uh, considered almost a god, god uh-huh. godlike figure. He dresses like a religious person and yes. so on. But he's the chap who brought Michael Jackson over and made <laughs> tons of money in Bangalore putting on a big show <laughs> for Michael Jackson. And this is the...
0: Pro-India, pro-Hindu, right. R- right, uh, right. staunch uh, advocate. Yeah, against foreign influences. And this article mentions in his home, there's a large picture of him holding hands with Michael Jackson. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> so he doesn't mind the money.
0: Right, <laughs> right. I, I think that's probably universal for politicians.
1: He's very rich, too, very yeah. rich. Although he's fading now, his, uh, he's, I think his nephew is going to be taking over. Nephew or son.
0: We are speaking with yeah. Professor Sherrod Malelu. Emeritus Professor of Sociology at California State University at Sacramento. In this same New Yorker article, they quote a, a, a Congress party politician, Mane Shankar Ayar. I don't, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mane Shankar Ayar. Yes. Okay, that's better. Yeah. Uh, who was quoted as saying the Hindu nationalist philosophy of the BJP is the negation of everything that has made us a nation. He went on to say that we are the only continuous ancient civilization in the world to have heterogeneity as its fundamental principle. I think anyone who's been to India would, would agree that it is certainly a heterogeneous culture with like 15, I guess, official languages per the constitution.
1: Yes. But the, the trouble is, the, um, in these so-called developing nations, the question comes up, what does it mean to be a citizen of that nation? Yes. What do you include in the sense of national identity? And uh, the right wing is pushing for the idea that you have to be a Hindu in the cultural sense to be an Indian. Right. And if you're not a Hindu in the cultural sense, uh, then you're not really an Indian. The Congress, uh, of course, is saying the other thing. Hinduism, in fact, would reject that notion, this notion of exclusivity, because unlike other religions, uh, you can believe in any of the other religions, the religious right. leaders and figures and so on, it still be a Hindu. But you can't do it the other way. Christians can't be Hindus and, and still be Christians.
0: Yes, and I, I, didn't, I didn't realize this, but I guess, in, in, I guess Muslim citizens of India are granted certain privileges that they are, they are held to a different set of laws as is the Hindu population.
1: They've tried to accommodate the different groups by marriage laws, for example, yes. and divorce laws. They're different for the different religious groups, according to their religious uh, tenets and so on. There's a strong push now for a single, a uniform
0: law for marriage. India has a population now that's, that's gone above a billion, and uh, per the world almanac it's got 14% Muslims, which would mean in 140 million plus Muslims it would be the second most populous uh, Muslim state in the world after Indonesia.
1: Yes, yes, and so to think of India as anti-Muslim in any sense is ridiculous. In fact, the Muslims who are in India if you gave them the option to go to Pakistan, they wouldn't go. Because they think of themselves as Indians, they, they see India as their home, and they've lived uh, peacefully with their neighbors until the politicians, of course, come in and <laughs> stir the brew there.
0: I was somewhat surprised to learn in researching for, for our talk that uh, the, even the very word Pakistan, it was actually coined by a man named Ramatullah Chowdhury, a Cambridge student. It means land of the pure. It's, a, it's an acronym for various, par, for various portions they thought should be part of this Pakistan. So it's got a double meaning, I guess. It could have gone a different way in 1947. You mean the split? Yeah. We, talk, we should talk about that a bit.
1: Well, there's not much to say except that uh, Mahatma Gandhi, for example, was quite opposed to that. But, of course, the British played their hand here. They were, I don't think they were interested in having a strong, powerful, united India.
0: Right. So they, they play one side they off the other. They play both sides right.
1: to strengthen their own position sure. and get, make the most out of it. And so they appeased Jinnah. And of course, Nehru was anxious to be prime minister.
0: You should probably explain to our audience who, 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 who Jim, Jinnah was. Oh,
1: Jinnah was the founder of Pakistan, that is, the political founder of Pakistan, head of the Muslim community during the independence struggle towards the end. Actually, he was a member of Congress, but uh, he didn't think he could be number one in Congress. So right. he turned to another constituency, the Muslims.
0: He we said, must, we must split India into, into two nations. He
1: insisted. Yeah. And of course, he was not a good Muslim anyway. He was a very stylish, westernized uh, Muslim who, who had, didn't adopt the Muslim canons of code, uh, you know, drinking and
0: smoking. Right. And, and <laughs> he married a Parsi, I think. <laughs> I just did. He drank. He smoked. He he couldn't speak uh, uh, Urdu no, no. and couldn't read Arabic. <laughs> That's right. So he couldn't read the Quran, and yet he was he was the father the of, of modern of the Pakistan, the
1: pure Islamic state.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> he was certainly a very polished politician. At that time, Nehru was anxious to be prime minister. So Mm -hmm. he said, well, better get it over with and I'll get my chance to be a prime minister because he was getting told too.
0: So Nehru Nehru saw the chance to lead India, Jinnah saw the chance to lead Pakistan, and poor Mohandas Gandhi was trying to keep everything together. Yes, yes, and of course in the end he got his. I I was reading that when India was partitioned, At midnight, uh, August 14th, 1947, um, actually I should read the quote from, from Nehru if I can find it. It was very eloquent. Jawaharlal Nehru, the first prime minister of India, on August 14th, at the stroke of the midnight hour, while the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. A moment comes, which comes but rarely in history, when we step out from the old to the new, when an age ends and when the soul of a nation, long suppressed, finds utterance. And at midnight that night, British India became Pakistan and, and the modern state of India.
1: That's right. She right. was a brilliant man, literary figure, considered one of the great writers in English. I don't know if you've read any of his works. I am, but, I'm sorry uh, to say I yes. have not. And the, the most well-known one is The Discovery of India, where he writes from the Indian standpoint, mm-hmm. the history of India from the very beginning, and all the influence. And, of course, he idealizes India, but he writes beautifully, and I certainly recommend the book uh, as
0: general reading. Well, we think today of two nations at odds with one another, with a, with a, with a frontier. Uh, what was originally Pakistan divided into to West and East Pakistan. East Pakistan subsequently became Bangladesh in, I guess,
1: 1970. Yeah, in fact, uh, Jinnah actually wanted a corridor. Connecting the two sections right, right through a, a the Ganges valley. valley right <laughs> <laughs> the most fertile part of India of course he didn't get it yeah
0: right right yeah. but on this the same day which which of course uh, which you know Jinnah was over in I guess uh, probably Karachi and I don't know I guess it was the capital then and and in, in New Delhi uh, Nehru was now reigning supreme Gandhi was uh, feeling defeated and was actually, I guess, in, in Bangladesh or in the Ganges Delta, uh, trying to, to hang out with Muslims to put down some of the, the violence that had flared between the Hindus and Muslims as this partition had taken place.
1: He was doing what he had uh, spent most of his life doing, fostering peace and goodwill. He was the take of things. Uh, he risked his life, of course, naturally, yeah. in that that setting, you know, where all this bloodshed was going on. Sure. You may have read some of it uh, in the papers and so on.
0: Very famous movie with which Oscar award-winning movie of, of about 15, 20 years ago, Gandhi.
1: Oh, yes, yes. Except that only showed a political side of Mahatma Gandhi. That wasn't the most important aspect of Mahatma Gandhi, although he was instrumental in achieving independence. But the most important part, which is now hidden in India, because nobody talks about it, It is his economic program. It also expresses his attitude toward Western uh, culture. He said, the hope for the world is a spinning wheel. And what he meant was village self-sufficiency. Yeah. Cultivate small businesses throughout India. Right. And now we're turning towards that as a result of the uh, looking at all the mistakes Nehru made Mm -hmm. with this notion of industrialization. Right and large-scale, massive hydroelectric projects and sure. so on. In fact, Nehru himself, towards the uh, end of his career, said um, these industrial projects, these ma- hydroelectric power projects, even if they are not useful for India as they were constructed, they have a symbolic value. So India can look at them and say, oh, we're making progress. Right. So even he recognized, or started to recognize, that that wasn't the answer. But uh, Mahatma Gandhi, that's, uh, in fact, uh, his followers now, living in India, are trying to restore and resurrect that.
0: I, di- I didn't realize he still had a following.
1: Yes, but they're uh, not heard of. Right. Too, you know, not very popular. Occasionally you hear about them. There are people like Baba Amte, for example, in, in, in uh, Maharashtra, who are working on the village level, and there are lots of NGOs, which are non-governmental organizations, all over India, doing all sorts of work, but on a small scale because they're not getting the kind of funding you get right. for these globalisation so The opposite projects. of globalisation, yes, decentralisation, yes. Yeah. And of course, there's no, uh, no, there's no money in it for the politicians, and so that's the dilemma that India faces. And of course, the pressure to uh, globalise comes from the West, yeah, because the West, in a sense, is saying to countries like India, if you want to, if you want to function on the world level with us, then you've got to be like us. That's the only kind of language you'll understand, the language of power. That's why China has such a powerful role. Even though India is comparable in many ways, that's where the power is.
0: Well, any, any comment on another, uh, perhaps not very well thought out effort to, to build a big technologic marvel the subject of pride, the atom bomb. India, India has had an atom bomb for quite some time and, and now apparently Pakistan does as well. Does this worry you? Well, uh, it's a waste of money. Obviously,
1: money down the drain, but it's a very complicated thing because there's China on this side mm-hmm. and there's Pakistan here, and the two have very close relations, yes. have had for a long time. And so India faces the possibility. In fact, India was threatened by China at one time, if you remember. There was this border war, yeah and they're still trying to negotiate where the border is between India and China and so on along there. And uh, at the same time, they're playing ball with Pakistan and supplying all sorts of equipment and so on to Pakistan. And so what does India do? You have, in a sense, no choice. And if you want the West to come to to speaking terms with with us in India, Mm -hmm. uh, then the West says you've got to be powerful. Otherwise, we won't talk to you. We won't bother with you. And so I think uh, it's a way of saying we count too, which is a mistake, I think. Mahatma Gandhi's approach would have been just the opposite. In fact, Nehru started with this notion of non-alignment. That was his big pitch. This is a different way. But of course, what happened? Western power was too much. You had to match that power with the terms that the West imposed on the rest of the world. And that's what the rest of the world is trying to fight right now. But the only level on which it can be really fought is on the level of globalization. Because globalization is not going to work in India and in large countries. There are too many people there. You've got to work with the masses on their level, make life good for them. And that's where the solution lies. And so maybe there's hope there.
0: That concludes the first part of our talk with Dr. Sherrod Malalo. He will return to us a few weeks from now to finish his discussion of affairs related to the Indian subcontinent. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to KDVS 90.3, Davis, Sacramento.